it really was just an awe-inspiring event to look and say, okay, here's my mother. You know, she obviously attracted the attention of of somebody many, many years later. And then to see her in the context of her professional life and to realize she was not the cool girl who got in trouble after the prom, but a professional woman. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to meet Ed, who called me from Hillsboro, North Carolina, but his journey begins in New York City. He described a wonderful life in the suburbs of the city with no real concerns for his adoption, even after carrying his original birth certificate around as a teenager. Sparked by reunion television shows, Ed searched for his natural parents, discovering that his mother had been a star performer. Thanks to the generosity of strangers, Ed gratefully received the gift best given. This is Ed's journey. Ed said he was adopted immediately at birth. He was born on a Monday, and his new parents took him home that Tuesday, as planned in his private adoption. Ed lived an idyllic life in the suburbs of Queens, New York, one of the five boroughs. His mom was a stay-at-home mom. His dad went to work every day. There was an elementary school near their home and a recreational park across the street. He said it was about as close to the simple life of that old show, Leave it to Beaver, as his life could have possibly been. Ed's community was interesting because his home was only one of two Christian families on the block. Every other home was Jewish. He said it didn't mean very much, except you could see the differences in the cultures. Ed's dad was raised in a wonderfully joyous, very boisterous Italian family. His mother was from a more subdued Ukrainian family. Ed said he always identified more with the Ukrainians. I wondered if Ed grew up knowing if he was adopted or if it was shared with him at any point. No. You know, the interesting thing was I remember I was probably about seven or eight years old or so. And I remember my mother saying something as I was on the way out of the house to go play that, well, somebody may say you don't belong to us, but that doesn't matter, so don't listen to them. And it was a little perplexing, but yeah, I did what most kids did. I just went out and I played. And I kind of just put it in the back of my mind and never really dealt with it. And it wasn't until somewhere probably in my early teens, I was going through some papers. My parents, they were out of the house. And they kept one of these fireproof boxes with the insurance policies and the deed and everything else. And there was a folder with my name on it. And I went and I looked in there and came across a document uh, which said Certificate of Birth by Adoption. And it was issued by New York City. And it listed my name as Mel Norowski, which turned out to be my birth mother's maiden name. Uh, so that that was the first clue, and I sort of looked at it, and I folded it up, I put it back in the envelope, put it back in the box, and put the box away, and never, never asked about it. 
And it wasn't until I turned 18, that 18 you could drink in New York at the time, that I once again fished that out and folded it up, put it in my wallet. So if anyone asked me if I was old enough to drink, I could whip out my birth certificate and say yes. Wow. But there was never a firm statement from my parents, and I never asked. And I, I suppose my motivation, number one, was I, I lived a, such a good life. There was really no reason to care. But I think in looking back, there was probably also some feeling as if they weren't talking about it, then I wasn't supposed to talk about it. So I never did. Interesting. Did you tell me what age about approximately were you when you found this document in the file box? Oh, it's probably about 11, 12, 13, somewhere oh. in that range. Oh. I think it was interesting because I recognized the name as a Polish name. Mm-hmm. And I still, re- I, I just thought of this last evening. We were with my mother's brother, and he happened to make a kind of derogatory comment about Poles. And my mother adored her brother, but she just jumped all over him. And I thought that was odd, but at the same time she did that, there was something that clicked in me and said, this has something to do with me. And I think, you know, she was just, in her own way, she was trying to protect me and where I came from. Wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah, even while maintaining the secret, she was also protecting you from prejudices. Ed was about 13 when he found that document in his parents' secure box. His first name on the document simply read male. No first name, just the identification of his gender. He was an unidentifiable person for one day when he came into the world, until he was named in adoption. Ed said he was an only child at home, but not for lack of his parents trying to adopt another child. He remembers a family trip to Paris when he was seven years old, where they visited what Ed thinks must have been an orphanage. And there was some explanation to me at that point about wouldn't you like a sister or some question like that. And honestly, in my head, I'm thinking, nah, I kind of like it just the way it is right now. But, <laughs> but we went and they had a meeting there. And as it turned out, they were, you know, they were not awarded a child. And I think that was the last attempt there was to, you know, to possibly enlarge the family. But did it process to you at all? Maybe you were too young and hadn't discovered this document yet at 11 or 12. Probably not. I'm thinking to myself, could it have occurred to you, like, why are you guys out, quote unquote, shopping for a child? You know what I mean? I don't know. Well, that, you know, I think that's a two-part answer is first, I don't think it reflected on me as thinking, okay, I must be adopted too. But I think there was a child's curiosity of wanting to just make one. If you want another one, make another child. Describing his relationship with his parents, Ed told me he felt like he shared some qualities with both of his parents. His father was in the motion picture business, and Ed could see his own analytical traits being similar to his father's business acumen. His mother was more artistic, which Ed also could relate to. He remembers going through phases of being interested in music, dabbling in art, and drafting short creative stories. But he admits he and his parents could not have been more dissimilar in their physical presence. His parents were 5 foot 2 inches tall. By the time Ed hit high school, he was 6 feet tall. 
I would ask, okay, you know, why am I so tall and you're so short? And there, there was always the, well, your Uncle Connie is a tall man. Mm-hmm. And she did, my mother did have one brother who was rather tall and his sons were tall. So I just sort of satisfied myself with, okay, somewhere the the genes got scrambled and I, I've got their genes. Yeah. Interestingly, as I've, as I've found my birth parents or identified them, I found out that both of them were also rather diminutive people. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how that all shakes out. You know, my, my mother was five feet tall and 95 pounds. Wow. That's really funny. And I, yeah, I ultimately met my birth father's, one of his wives, he had five. And, wow. and when I met her, she said, so where does the height come from? So obviously nobody, nobody quite has a grip on that. <laughs> That's so interesting. That's a, it's a funny thing. Usually adoptees find answers in their genetics, and you, in fact, didn't. You're this anomaly of height in both families. As a teenager, Ed had a strong sense of identity, so even though he was carrying this document around that clearly identified him as an adoptee, he never focused on its true meaning. He wasn't searching for identity, so the original birth certificate didn't strike a nerve for him. Ed's teenage years were not troubled years for him. He was an athlete and a musician in a private school, and life was good. I wondered what made Ed start to search. He pointed out to me that he was born in 1948, but he didn't start his search until 2017, nearly 70 years later. It was the proliferation of search shows on television that got in Ed's head. I think there were a number of things. I think, you know, I think the TV shows that have started coming around, you know, the Henry Louis Gates show, the long lost families start to make you think a little bit and say, okay, these people are looking. And I think there was always part of me that said, this wouldn't be worth the search. It's going to be a lot of work and I may not find anything. So why bother? I'm, I'm happy as is. But I think with the advent of the the availability of the ancestry databases, DNA testing, things like that, it started to pique my interest. And in the winter of 2017, I had finished reading a book by a man by the name of Daniel Mendelssohn, who's a brilliant, brilliant writer. And he had written a book called The Lost the search for six of six million. And he was going back trying to trace six of his distant relatives who had perished in the Holocaust. And, you know, it was kind of a book which was part detective story, part history, you know, part primer on the Old Testament. And I was reading it, I think, for the third time at that point. And we were in New Jersey at the cemetery where my adoptive mother's parents were buried. We had gone up there. Her parents had come down to North Carolina from New Jersey to be close to us. They arrived in compromised medical condition. And within six months of each other, each of them had passed away. And we were up there to inter her father's remains, but we went to the second cemetery just to make a visit. And I was standing in front of the tombstone of my adoptive mother's parents, and something just clicked, and I, it, it, 
basically was if you're ever going to do it, now's the time. Hmm. And we got back to North Carolina, and that's that's where the search began. That's really interesting. What do you think it was that clicked there for you? I mean, you're happy. You're, what do you think it was standing in front of her there? Well, I, I think part of it was it was just there's some intellectual curiosity and saying, can I do what Mendelssohn did? Uh, there was another part that said, you know, there's always been the nagging question of, you know, where where did I really come from? And I had always had a picture of, you know, of a, my birth mother was probably a schoolgirl who stayed out too late after the senior prom or something. And, and you know, and, that, and I resulted from that. And I decided, you know, let's, let's go and see what I can find. And amongst the papers, the same place I found that birth certificate, uh, was sitting a copy of my adoption decree, which, you know, listed not only the details of my adoption, but my, ado- my birth mother's full name. And, wow. you know, it had been sitting there for, for years and years and years, and I had just neglected to go look at it. Her name was, on the paper, was Genevieve Irene Norowski. And uh, as you said, my birth certificate said male Norowski. His next stop was the public library. He plopped himself down in front of the computer to access the Ancestry.com database. Ed typed in Genevieve's name, then paused before he pressed the enter button and asked himself if he should really go forward. It was one of those moments where he knew that the next thing that happened could be really meaningful in learning more about his heritage, so he clicked the button. What kinds of things did you find in that first search? Well, you know, they were the first, you know, first were the, you know, would, were the census type records. And, and I sort of felt like I was peeking through somebody's bedroom window. You know, I found four children and the parents and, and I found that she was born in 1925. So she wasn't a schoolgirl. She was, she was 23 when I was born. Hmm. And I puttered around a little bit, just looking at her sisters and her brother. And then as I scrolled down, I found a passenger manifest listing her on the Queen Mary in 1950 going to Cherbourg, France. Wow. And I thought that was curious. I, I went to the next record, and it was a visa application completed in Portuguese traveling to Rio de Janeiro the year prior. And it listed two things. It listed her occupation as an artista. And I had no idea what that was. I knew it meant artist, but what kind? Mm-hmm. And the other piece that was the total, total revelation was there was a picture of her there. Wow. And that was kind of a, that was kind of a game changer. So, you know, that's, that's where I really started to get de- deeply involved. I, I, you know, I sent that home and I, you know, I came into the house and I pulled it up on my computer and said to my wife, do you want to see a picture of my mother? And she said, we've got lots of pictures of your mother. I said, no, this is my birth mother. And, you know, and she said, is there any more there? I said, I don't know. I stopped looking. So I went back to the library again and, and found a marriage license for her in 1955, which was seven years after I was born. And I deduced from that that she had adopted a uh, stage name, and mm-hmm. she had changed her name from Narowski to Naris. 
and she had married somebody else, and both were listed on the license as performers. And again, I didn't know what kind of artists or what kind of performers they were, but that sort of opened up the floodgate of information. This is really fascinating. Huh. What did you what did you see when you looked at this picture of this woman for the first time? Genevieve's face is now in front of you. What did you see in her? I, I saw some similarities. So I saw what I thought was a very serious woman. You know, she was, and this is a passport type picture. Nobody looks, you know, like the happy-go-lucky person <laughs> in a passport picture. Right. But you know, I, I did see some physical similarities. And when I brought it home to my wife, she she can look at any picture and say, well, that looks like so-and-so, or you have her ears and you have her nose. And one of the interesting things was she looked at it and said, that looks like James, and James is our son. So, you know, so uh. there was... There was a family resemblance there for sure. At that point, the clues were piling up for Ed. He had his natural mother's married name and her occupation as a performer. So he did what we all do. Ed turned to the internet for a broader search for Genevieve Naris, performer. He said two articles came back from the internet search. One from an online antiques magazine that was published a few years earlier. That first article was about someone who had bought some folk art from Genevieve and her husband Ted. The second article was even more interesting. It was written by a young woman in Atlanta, Georgia, who is a picker, one of those folks that travels around to yard sales and auctions and buys items that they think are hidden treasures that will be valuable to someone else and reselling them. And she had a blog post which had about half a dozen pictures of my mother a couple of different documents, some some pieces of memorabilia from the 1940s. And I discovered that my mother had been a celebrity ice skater in the big ice shows in the 1940s and 50s. Wow. That's really fascinating. That must have been so, so cool to see, to- like, artifacts of your mother. Like, someone else has found this trove of historical facts about your family, about a woman that you didn't even know. Exactly right. That's incredible. And now this woman had purchased it, not because she knew who Genevieve was, but just it was a young woman at a glamorous time in in history, and she bought it just out of curiosity. Wow. And yeah, it was, it was, it was, it really was just an awe, awe-inspiring event to look and say, okay, here's my mother. You know, she obviously attracted the attention of of somebody many, many years later. And then to see her in the context of her professional life and to realize she was not the, you know, not the schoolgirl who got in trouble after the prom, but a professional woman who you know, somehow, you know, got herself in a situation that almost interrupted her career. Wow. This is so interesting. Because I'm thinking to myself, so many kids and adults, I mean, they fantasize about who their birth parent might be. And it's always someone who has some sort of a claim, be it, uh, you know, a well-known academician, a politician, or often an actor or performer. And it's such a fantasy See, for most people. mine was exactly the opposite. Really? Mine was exactly the opposite. I always assumed that my mother worked at the post office or swapped, you know, food at the high school cafeteria. 
So this was just uh, this was a bolt out of the blue. That's so interesting. That's so so interesting to me. So many people have the fantasy of fame. You had the opposite fantasy and found fame. Yeah, that's really interesting. Ed's natural mother, Genevieve, performed over a period of about 15 years, starting in the 1940s, in what were called tank shows. These were portable ice skating rinks, maybe 20 feet by 20 feet, that you might find in the lobby of a luxury hotel or in a high-end restaurant back then. The establishments would hold ice shows over the course of the evening to create a unique experience for their guests. Genevieve graduated to the Ice Follies, the first and biggest traveling ice company. That's where she became pregnant with Ed. The Ice Follies would take the summer off in San Francisco, starting a new tour every September. Ed's next step was trying to find this picker to see if she still had the memorabilia she wrote about in the blog. And if she did, would she sell it to him and for how much? On social media, Ed found several people with the picker's name, and one of them lived in Atlanta, Georgia, which was in relative proximity to where his birth mother had lived at one point. He contacted the woman, shared that he was exploring a possible family relationship, and the picker confirmed she was the right person and she still had the artifacts from Genevieve's career. But the picker was really busy and asked if she could call Ed back. A week went by, no call. So Ed called again. And this time I was a little less discreet. I said, all those things are of my mother. <laughs> you know, can we talk? Wow. And she called back within three minutes. She said, I am so sorry. <laughs> and she said, you need to come here. So, you know, she was, she was very excited. We, we traveled to Atlanta probably two weeks later to meet with her. And we waited in the hotel lobby. And then she comes walking in with this carton of, of stuff. And shortly behind her comes another man with a, with a sword and a teenage mutant ninja turtle type of, what would you call it? I'm sorry. Costume? Uh, yeah. You know, so he, he came walking in, created a little, drew a little bit of attention. <laughs> but as it, you know, so we, we spent several hours together. It turned out that the, the pieces he brought in were props that had been created by, my mother and her husband in their business, they, when they retired from ice skating, went into the business of, of building props. And they did that for some, for some very significant performances. They did the ice folly or the holiday on ice for several years after they left. I'm told that my, that her husband created the first sets for the Broadway production of Hello Dolly. Wow. They had done the sets for the 1961 Miss America contest. So they were very prominent in their field. And, you know, we went through all of the, the, the ephemera that she had. And I was just drooling. And we had put checks with us. And I was, you know, I was going to make them an offer, ask them what they would want to, to sell it. And there were some pictures of, other skaters all autographed to my mother and I said do you mind if I just get my notebook so I can jot down their names and the two of them kind of looked at each other confusedly and they said well why do you want to write them down I said well I'm going to try to see if any of these people are alive and maybe I could trace 
my mother's history through them to say, you don't need to write it down. This is all yours. We've just been holding it for you. Oh, and my God. they just, you know, it was just the ultimate piece of generosity. Wow. Yeah, because they purchased and, this yeah, stuff I, for whatever interested them, and they just gave it to you. That's incredible. Exactly right. And, you know, they said, you know, this just, this, there's a reason that we had this, and there's a reason we're together. It's yours now. I, I was sitting there seven, 70 years old and ready to cry. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I, you know, I've recently written a book, and my first dedication is to them, or my first acknowledgement, oh, you know, because they, they just swung the door wide open. When he got the stuff home, Ed started going through all of the artifacts, noting names of people, and starting to research whomever he could. There were about a dozen pictures of women Ed's mother had performed with. Many of them had passed on. Others he couldn't locate at all. But one Ed was able to find through her deceased husband's obituary. A gorgeous woman named Isabel. The obituary named the man's family members, including his son. So Ed wrote to the man's son in an effort to connect with Isabel. I sent the picture I had of his mother and the picture of my mother and said, you don't know me, and you know, but our mothers were friends in 1947. And I was just wondering if your mom was alive. And I kind of explained the story. And about a week later, I got a phone call. And he said, yeah, this is, this is Brad Holton. Yeah, mom is alive. And I showed her the pictures. And she's just really excited. Wow. And I, I said, is it possible I could talk to her? He said, well, yeah, she'd love to talk to you. He said, but I got to warn you, mom is in a memory care facility. Mm-hmm. And he said, the good, he said, the bad news is she can't remember what she had for breakfast today. The good news is she could remember minute by minute everything that happened in 1947. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so she and I had probably an hour and a half long conversation by telephone. And actually, several months later, my wife and I traveled to Minnesota to go and meet her and, and spent the better part of five hours with her. And it was just a wonderful experience. That's incredible. Wow. You know, she... She gave us some good feel for what their life was like at the time. Mm-hmm. At the time, but she, she kept on saying, "Your mother was a star. Your mother was a star." But you know, but then she would say, "But I had no idea who your father was or who she was dating." So mm-hmm. it wasn't helpful that way. But it was just, it was a lovely experience. She's just, uh, I think, a great part of this whole journey has just been the nice and the generous people that we've encountered. Yeah, there's some great folks out there, yeah. and when they know yeah, that there's a you're lot searching of good for people answers, out there who we sometimes overlook. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I don't. I think they don't necessarily get the opportunity to demonstrate or exercise their generosity, but it's in there, and it's not until someone like you or I comes along and they have an opportunity to give that they can they do it fully. It's really ma- amazing. Right, right. That's so cool. So, what did she tell you about how their what their life was like back then? Well, you know, they, she basically said, you know, we were mostly very young people, and they would, you know, the management of the show was very concerned with its image, so they guarded us judiciously. You know, when the show was over, we got back to our hotel, and there was a curfew, and you better be in your room. And then she paused. She said, "The only time they made any exception was when I dated Ronald Reagan." And what I, I said, "Excuse me." Yeah, and 
you know, as they said, the show summered over in San Francisco, and each day they would rehearse their coming season, and each night they would perform the current season, and then in September they would move to Los Angeles where they would premiere, and in its time, the Ice Follies premiere was a major event. It was broadcast nationally on radio. All the celebrities would come out. And Ronald Reagan apparently took a liking to Isabel. Is that right? So they, they, had a, they had a little bit of a relationship while she was there. Isabel wasn't able to identify who Ed's birth father could have been. So I asked if he was ever able to learn about his paternal connections. He said before he ever decided to search, his wife told him, look, if you don't want to know who your natural parents are, you should at least do a DNA test to learn your ethnicity. For Christmas in 2016, he bought DNA kits for himself and his wife. Their results were returned in May after the holiday rush. He learned he's about 50% Eastern European, which he said would have correlated with the empathy he felt for the Ukrainian side of his maternal adopted family. He found out he's 25% Ashkenazi Jew and another 25% Northern European and British Isles. But when he peered into his genetic family relationships, he got a surprise. At the top of the list was a high probability first cousin. Ed was already familiar with the last names of most of his genetic maternal family, so this person's name, being a standout from the others, suggested a paternal connection. In another stroke of good fortune, this first cousin was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he had an extensive family tree documented online. And I looked, and he had six aunts and one uncle. And I said, the uncle's got to be my father. I said, it's the only thing that makes he and I are cousins and that one uncle's got to be my father. Um. So I reached out to him and I sent him an email. And contrary to what a lot of people experience, in 10 minutes I got an answer back. Huh. And he said, I'm really excited to see this. You know, and he said, and by, you know, your deduction is probably right. You know, it's, he's the only male relative there. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I never thought I would ever, you know, identify who my father was. And I was talking to my wife and another email drops in from him. So I was just looking at this again. He said, you know, where, where was your mother when you were conceived? Do you know? Yes, my mother was in San Francisco. It was August of 1947. I know that much. And, you know, I sent that message back, and he came back to me and said, my uncle never left Texas. <laughs> and, you know, this was not the days of when you hopped on a flight to go and visit someone for the weekend. Right. And he said, I'm also looking at your DNA. He said, I see that you're 25% Ashkenazi Jew. He said, my uncle has no Jewish background. Okay, now it's starting to come off the tracks here. He said, he said but I'm 25% Jewish. And he said, as it turned out, you know, you can probably jump ahead. He was not my first cousin. He's my half-brother. Wow. And, you know, so we, there, it, we then identified his father, who had never left San Francisco, and who had had a relationship with with the folks who ran the um, the rink where Ice Follies performed every, every summer. So you had to focus on 
this guy's dad. Yeah, absolutely so. And how did and how'd that ancestry go? And he could not have been more excited and, and wanting to you know, to be part of the part of the journey. Really? He was very, very pleased. Yeah, he was he was quite excited by it. He's a yeah, he's a a real intellectual sort, very analytical and he he just yeah, he appreciated the mystery and the, the deduction and and he was an only child, and he all of a sudden had a brother, and he was very excited by it. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, you know, ancestry the first time through identified us. Yeah, identified us as as cousins. In subsequent iterations, they came back in twenty three and me did the same thing and identified us as half brothers. So, so there was little doubt. That's really unbelievable. What a shock that must have been for him. Yeah, yes, yeah, I think it was a shock to both of us. And so now you've got but, a, yeah, but a, a good shock. Yeah, good shock. You know, he and I have subsequently met, and I think the last things you know we embraced as we were leaving. Said, you know, I'll be back out and I'll see you again next year. And he said, "What do you think if there are more of us?" <laughs> and so far, no one else has shown up. But wow, but that's a very real thing, you know. Oh, absolutely so. If, if there's absolutely. one, there could be more. That's really incredible. Man, I'm glad you found this guy. That must have been cool. What did he tell you about his dad? What did you learn? Your dad. His, you know what his, his main theme was? You probably did better with your adoptive parents than you would have done with him as your father, which was kind of a sad thing to hear from somebody. And you know, he just said he was a very impetuous, compulsive type person he was never a constant presence ed and his wife visited with the new brother rich who said that his mother would like to meet ed something ed had been hoping for she was the woman ed's birth father married a few years after his birth rich's mom in her mid-90s at the time was bright alert and beautiful rich introduced ed his wife and their son to his mother she greeted everyone, then quickly dismissed them all, except Ed, asking him to stay because she wanted to tell him about his birth father. So they left, and I sat there with her. She said, I just want to tell you about your father, which I thought was an incredibly generous thing to do. Sure. And she she told me pretty much the same things that my brother Richard told me, and, you know, about you know, her husband having been... Yeah, controlling and impetuous and compulsive, and he'd buy a car on Friday and sell it so he could buy a buy a new car on Monday. And she said, and he, you know, he dictated that Monday, Saturday is going to be my day. Don't ask me where I go. And she put up with that for ten years, and finally, they parted ways. And yeah, she and it was rather sad. The last thing she said to me was the saddest part was he never said goodbye to Rich when he left. Oh no! And you know, Rich, Rich was his son, and you know, so I you hear something like that, and I think I hit the gold mine with my adoptive parents. During the process of gathering information about his roots, Ed learned that his natural mother passed away in 2014 at the age of 89. He missed her by only three years. He identified two maternal half brothers one who is deceased after a murder-suicide in which he was the gunman. As far as Ed knows, the other is still alive, but Ed can't find him. 
He sent handwritten notes to multiple different addresses south of Atlanta, but they all came back undeliverable. Ed said he returned to the blog post where he first found his birth mother's photo and started reading the comments. There, he saw a note from a man who said he was friends with Genevieve's son, and they still talked to one another. Ed was able to make contact with the commenter, Genevieve's son's friend, and that man bridged the connection to Ed's maternal half-brother. So I finally made contact with my maternal half-brother near the end of April. He was friendly and talkative. Um, I explained our relationship that his mother was also my mother, but I got the sense that either he didn't hear what I had said or he didn't grasp it. He told me that he was busy and he said that he would call me the next evening. He called two days later and I missed that call, unfortunately. It took over three months before he responded to my numerous phone calls. Again, he talked very freely, and we began making plans for my wife and I to travel to Georgia so we could meet him in September. Uh, At the same time, he told me that his wife had asked who I was, and he told her that I was some kind of kin. Uh, I explained again, but when we visited in early September, he again asked what kind of kin we were. And it was apparent to me then that he hadn't grasped or didn't want to understand my earlier explanations. I told him again that his mother had given birth to me before she married his father and gave birth to him. He said, I don't know how that could be. My mama would have told me. Ultimately, I showed him a copy of my adoption decree, and it had his mother's very recognizable signature on it. And once he came to terms with the fact that his mother kept a secret from him, he's been very accepting of me as his brother, and we've been in frequent contact ever since. Wow, so cool. I got to tell you, Ed, I'm looking at your mom online. Like, I found the blog post. It's so cool. A good-looking woman, isn't she? Oh, my gosh, she's beautiful, and she's got her, yeah. She's got herself, you know, in costume, you know, posed for her, for her picture as if she's about to go on the ice. I just find this absolutely fascinating. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you to discover this trove of stuff. So you have oh, all of these posters and everything? Discovery. You know, the the Rhode Island cabana and all of this other stuff? Yeah, everything that you see there I've got in my possession now. <clears throat> wow. This is fascinating. What a trove of history. That's uh, the, so whole, cool. the whole thing. The whole thing has been a gift. Mm-hmm. It's a totally unexpected gift. I, I started this with an academic, let's just fill in the blanks and move on type of approach. And this this has just kept on giving. Yeah, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that, man. That's really awesome. So cool. No, thank you. Yeah. Wow. Um, like I said, most adoptees think they are going to, they hope they're going to find a birth parent who's a star and you actually did and i just i think that's so cool that's really amazing yeah in her time she was quite the star that's awesome cool ed well thanks so much for calling and sharing your story man and i'm really glad you were able to close the loop find some information get a chance to talk with isabel and and get some detailed history about how they live that must have just been amazing oh it's been a good It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Yeah, of course. All the best to you, Ed. Take care. Thanks for the call. Okay. You have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. 
I loved hearing that Ed's life as a six foot teen, towering over his significantly shorter parents, never phased him as an adoptee, even as he carried his OBC around. I've sometimes wondered how many people have been inspired to start or continue a search after seeing television shows, listening to podcasts, or simply talking to another adoptee about their journey. I can't believe the stroke of luck Ed got to locate that blog post by a picker specifically talking about his birth mother, Genevieve. Can you imagine what it must have been like to go online and see his natural mother in costume for an Ice Follies performance? Then, to have that picture and costume she made decades before gifted to him, that, that must have been incredible. All of it unfolding for Ed in his 70s. Ed wrote a book about his journey of discovery to learn his natural parents' identity called The Gift Best Given, a memoir. I hope you'll check it out and add it to your reading list. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Ed's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow the show at facebook.com slash really or follow on Twitter at really. If the show is meaningful to you, you can support me with a contribution to keep it going on patreon.com slash really. Please subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to me if you took a moment to leave a five-star rating there. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. And if you're interested, you can check out the story of my adoption journey, Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com, on Kindle, or as an audiobook on Audible. I hope you'll add my story to your reading list.